name is Cameron Milne and you are listening to Silent Studios, the podcast that gives an insight into the creative methods behind musicians, producers and audio engineers alike and how these original techniques are applied to a project of their own. Kircher is a five-time ARIA award-winning audio producer and engineer. He has worked on some of the greatest albums produced in Australian history. The likes of Josh Pike, Bertie Blackman, Sarah Blasco, Art vs. Science, The Vines, UMI, Andy Bull and Augie March are just a handful of the amazing artists Paul has worked with. I was lucky enough to chat with Paul to see how he works. My name's Paul McKercher and I'm a producer, a mixer, engineer and educator. I mix a lot of records lately. That seems to be what I've been doing along with my lecturing work. I've been in the business for, let me see, um, 30 odd years now. I came out of, um, I was one of those geeky kids that liked music and gadgets. Moving into the the production side of the music industry seemed like a a perfect match for those two interests of loving music and uh, machines with knobs that make sounds. many factors that come into play when mixing and producing music. Paul sets out with a very solid goal in mind, make it sound fantastic, no matter what the project. Of course, unless you are cut from the same cloth as Paul, this is easier said than done. I would be happy to mix anything that came my way because I think it's a fairly simple brief is make it sound fantastic. Secondary to that, send the client out the door with a smile on their face. I think the skill set applies to most genres of music, though it seems that through the course of my career, rock bands come to me. So I work with rock, pop, a lot of singer-songwriter stuff, not so much electronic stuff. So this Andy Bull track that we're going to talk about was perhaps a little bit out of my comfort zone, which was, you know, good for me. Certainly stretched me and made me perhaps abandon some of my usual working methods, try new things, uh, but always coming back to that place of reacting to what comes out of the speakers and trusting your instincts and trusting what you hear rather than falling back on perhaps previous methods that you'd used or even, you know, things that you might have read on the internet or trying to just keep it very, in the way that people listen to music, it's it's an instant reaction. It doesn't go through, it's not intellectualised. You, you react emotionally to it first up and then you intellectualise it later. So I try to, as a particularly when I'm mixing and recording as well, just try to keep all my re- reactions on an emotional level. The deep thought and that can come later. Be the listener before the listener gets to hear it, I guess, is a good way to approach it. Creation of music is not often referred to as a teen sport. But of course, when we think about music, it is created more often than not by more than one person. Paul reflects on this dynamic and the role he plays when becoming part of a new musical project. The more music I work with and the more production I do, the more I realise that control is not always a great thing and that sometimes it's better just to let the musos do what they want to do and be more of a shepherd rather than a benevolent dictator. Look, I think it's a, um, making music is a team sport and that when you put a bunch of creative people in a room together, uh, incredible things can happen and it doesn't actually need to be controlled and steered that much because if everyone is more or less on the, the same page, 
stage, then it will just spontaneously happen. And I'm often asked, tell me about the biggest stouches you've ever had in studios and the big fights and the big disagreements. They just, they don't happen because, you know, birds of a feather, you just end up not working with people that you don't click with. And that's another thing I've learned too over my career is to is to not work with people I don't click with because it doesn't do their music justice for me to give a, an effort that where my heart and soul's not into it. And so if there's that synergy between people where they can sort of read each other's thoughts and they are aesthetically on the same page, then things happen and everyone shares the joy. And, and for a lot of artists, it can be the most amazing time in their lives. For some people that don't have access to these sort of experiences, maybe the greatest day of their life is when they're married or when their children are born. But when you work in studios with clever, creative musicians, you can have those sort of experiences, you know, every month. Often the difference between a producer and a mix engineer is the ability to move and manipulate the internal workings of a song. To some, this might seem like the mix engineer is limited in their impact on the overall product. One of the reasons so many musicians want to work with Paul is due to his ability to impart so much detail into the track via the mixing process. Look, I let the song guide me. When I mix now, I spend a lot more time listening to the song and thinking up ideas before I actually get into the studio to mix it. I'm in a place where my hands can't do anything, where I can't change the sound. I have to just live with the music. It's my brain and the music rather than my hands and the music because um, it's a very different way of thinking about things when you can reach out and change something rather than uh, just thinking about it and this is what I'm going to do when I get to the studio tomorrow. Look, I'll prepare it, I'll get rid of things like headphone spill and if there's, you know, any bad edits, clicks, that sort of thing, I'll get the pencil out and draw them out and all that sort of general tidying up. But also just listen to the song a number of times, maybe as I'm editing, and get a feel for what the song is trying to communicate, what the song needs, um, what the emotional uh, pitch of the song is. Um, Then I'll think about things like what sort of tone does it need? Should it be sort of dark and brooding or should it be bright and with a lot of light in the sound? Should it be, should the dynamics be smashed? Is it something that should just be coming at you on 11 the whole way? So a broad definition of dynamic range, is it is it going to be a super loud record or is it going to be more of a record that perhaps isn't pinning the metres the whole time that you could listen to and enjoy over a longer period of time? So it's not so it's not so fatiguing perhaps. Um, so that depends on the style of music and also the audience, of course. Those sort of things, how much ambience I'm going to build into the track, is it going to be very close to you? Is it going to be back a bit? And those sort of things are driven often by the lyrics. So if it's written in the first person, for instance, where the lyric is I and it's it's coming from a, a personal place that's delivered in the first person, for it to sound as though it's 100 miles away might obscure that directness a bit. Certainly if it's a, you know, a punk tune or a rock tune where someone is singing as though they've got you by the scruff of the throat, they're spitting as they speak and they're punching your chest with the point of their index finger, putting a whole bunch of ambience on it is not going to work because when someone is screaming fuck you in a song, they don't do it from 100 feet away because it's not very scary from 100 feet away. I guess I'm looking for points of interest so that the ear is carried from point to point within the song and there's a point of focus all the way through the song and it's as though a spotlight is wandering around a stage and picking out characters within a play, perhaps, so that there's a singular point of focus. And if you choose for your ear to wander behind that point of focus and listen to what else is happening in the arrangement, then certainly the mix needs to have enough clarity in it that your ear can do that. But it can always return to that singular point of focus. It's more like a school photo where someone is standing up and waving at the camera, where there is something that that really grabs your attention. 
I do try to think about a mix in, in visual terms, yeah. in, in almost filmic terms, yeah. uh, where there's, there's a change between scenes, there's changes of complexion. Maybe there might be a, a hard channel change where the song completely changes as though you'd switch the channel on your telly and you've gone into a different sonic universe for, for a little while and then maybe return back to the familiar universe. You know, it's it got to be entertaining. Knowing where you would like to take a track before writing, producing or even mixing is often crucial when starting a project. 30 odd years of experience has honed Paul's skill to a razor's edge and his mastery in knowing how to attack a mix is awe-inspiring. Interestingly, one of Paul's favourite methods of mixing is being able to let things go. It's rare that I don't already have a fairly clear sonic idea in my head of how I want it to sound. It's not as though I'm wandering around in the magic forest looking for the mushrooms. I know exactly where that little stash is and I want to go there. And I guess the, the advantage I have is that with all the, those years of experience, I know what tools are going to get me there and what I need to do to get me there quickly. Because another one of the goals is to get the song mixed before the 12-hour session uh, expires and you have to start paying $150 an hour. So there are these very very practical ideas of getting the job done, get it finished, get it done, and hopefully done to a point where it doesn't have to be done again and it doesn't need recalls and it doesn't need, you know, 50 revisions. I mean, if you were to do it another time and start from scratch, it would probably sound a little bit different, but because that sonic idea is there in my head, it's actually not going to sound that much different. And I will even sometimes mid-mix just close all the faders, not get attached to where the faders are at all. It might be a big mix with, you know, between 40 and 60 faders and I just shut them all and abandon the imperative, tear up the song sheet and just again start from that idea of I'm going to react to the music. I'm not going to get too attached to the fact that it took me three hours to find that sound. You know, if my if my smarts are there, I should just be able to get that sound quite quickly because the template is already inside my head. And it actually usually works out that way that, I'll, that the faders will all go back to pretty much where they were before because I'm working to that template that I've got in my head. And also I like to have a good balance within two passes two to three passes. So I'm not going to be sitting on a kick drum for three hours. I think it's, everything has to work within a context. And so it's pretty rare that I'll ever hit a solo button. I just push all the faders up and then work backwards. Or maybe I might start with bass drums and vocal and use that as perhaps the spinal cord of the mix and get them all working together and then build in the other mid-range elements around it so that uh, so the spinal cord is still there and then, you know, you put the ribs on and you, and you flesh it out. But it sounds good from hopefully within, you know, one hour of my after my patch-up within, you know, 20 minutes. It's like as the, it's as though you've been given a, a big block of marble and you've got to do a bust. So say, Cam, I've got to you know, shape a bust of you and I'm given a block of marble and I get a hammer and a big chisel and I knock it out pretty quickly. And within pretty quickly, there's, you know, that sort of looks a bit like Cam, it's kind of getting there, but then I'll get out the small chisels and the fine sandpaper and and work it and dial it in. But the, the basis of it and the feel, the vibe, the intention of the mix is there. The debate over analogue and digital audio, and which is supreme, is an ongoing saga for many people in the audio industry. Instead of limiting himself to one or the other, Paul has one foot firmly planted in both camps. 
I'm a bit of a dinosaur. I mix analogue, though it has become a little more in the box, but it's still a hybrid mix of in the box and analogue outboard gear and a good console. I find consoles that much faster. When you're working in the box, you can only do one thing at a time. When you're working on a console, you've got two hands. You can do two things at once. You can be EQing two different things or balancing two things. So immediately your, your workflow is twice as fast. Also, I would prefer to spend my brain energies on listening to the music rather than staring at a screen. I'm old enough that I come from the era when there were no screens in control rooms and it was really nice. You know, people stared off into the mid-distance or at their shoes or at the ceiling or um, into mid-space and just listened. There wasn't the screen being this magnet for the whole room to sort of look at slack-jawed with no actual, why, why do you need to look at the screen? You actually don't need to look at the screen. What purpose does it serve when you could just be listening? The, the audience don't look at waveforms. The only people that look at waveforms are production people. And there are reasons you look at waveforms. But when you don't need to look at a waveform, and this is a habit that's very hard to break, is don't look at the screen. Don't, just listen. I try to always have my screen to the side so that when I am in the sweet spot listening to the monitors, I'm not also staring at a screen. And when I do need to work in the box, then I just swing off to the side and maybe throw a set of headphones on or even switch to another little set of bookshelf speakers that are on the desk that the computer's on. So it's a, it's a nice, it's an enjoyable way to work. I've found that uh, plugins have come a long way. So I'm using more plugins than I used to. On this particular Andy Bull session, the only plugins are DSs. In fact, I don't think there's even DSs. There might be a couple of high-pass filters on things and everything else is analogue. So there's some summing within Pro Tools. Um, you know, there might be, I think there's like 30 backing vocal tracks. Um, so they all get summed to two outputs. Just makes it that much easier. So I'll do that sort of pre-mixing before I get to the studio if, if I can. Anything that can go out two outputs, I will. But things like guitars, I'll always split them out. Keyboards, I'll generally always split them out so that they can get a bit of extra love on the console. Drums, I'll always split them out so that they can hit analogue compressors and get that sort of heavy treatment that you need to make drums sound modern and really punchy, which you can get in the box, but you can get it so much easier and faster with analogue gear because, well, I know, I know the gear and generally speaking, the analogue versions of the simulations sound heaps better. I'm sorry, but they do sound heaps, heaps better. This record was mixed on an SSLK, which is a large format analogue. The great thing about the K is that alongside having a mix bus, it's also got another four stereo, what you could call mix buses, and they're called A, B, C and D, but they behave like mix buses. And on those, I put four different flavours of stereo compressors. It's pretty much the Brow method. I mean, Michael Brower has called it his method, but it's not. It's been around for a long time and it probably comes from uh, from live sound, from big festivals where you have heaps and heaps of inputs and instead of the um, systems engineer have to, having to run around the back of the console and, and move all the insert leads around, you just bus whatever vocals you're using to the vocal bus, which has got a compressor on it, or whatever drums you're using to the drum bus, which has got a compressor on it. So it makes for easy workflow, but also it means that the compressors are kind of, they're sort of mixing for you a little bit in that if, say, you've got four guitars in a compressor and the solo comes in into that same compression group and it's 5 dB louder than all the other guitars, then when that solo smashes into the compressor, all the other guitars are going to have to get out of the way. So the compressor is going to squash down harder, which makes the other four guitars softer, which straight away you've bought some real estate for your solo guitar. I do the same thing with backing vocals. I put all my backing vocals through a stereo compressor so that when there's a lot of them, the compressor works a little bit harder and that amount of 
backing vocals doesn't threaten to overwhelm the whole balance. And then when there's only one backing vocal, the compressor lifts up and that one backing vocal all of a sudden might be 5 dB louder than what it was if it were in an, a group of 30 backing vocals. So the compressor is kind of doing some writing for you and it means that while levels are, of things are going up and down, they're doing it in a, in a musical way and in a way which is buying space and buying real estate for things to be heard is, is sort of, you know, that's 80% of your work when you're, when you're mixing something that's got a lot of tracks. Not everything can be heard with full clarity all the time. Some things just have to get out of the way. So this is Andy Bull's track Baby I'm Nobody Now from his 2014 album Sea of Approval. I was approached by the record company to speak to Andy, myself and a bunch of other producers spoke to Andy and I think that Andy did his research and listened to everybody's work and for some reason he chose me. I gave Andy help with home production. He's very astute as a producer. He's a great songwriter, a great arranger, hell of a player, hell of a singer. So the things that he was giving me were beautifully arranged, which makes mixing so much easy because straight away the the real estate has been, you know, the grid's been drawn and and the right houses have been put on the right streets and all that, to to extend that metaphor perhaps a little too far. But, you know, a good arrangement is all that a mixer could really hope for. And the sounds were, uh, the sounds were all good. A lot of his sounds were lined level. The things that weren't line level were drums and guitars and vocals, obviously. But his synthesizers were analog synths, uh, Juno 60s, Juno 6s. Um, now, the great thing about those keyboards is that you can't store the sounds. There may be some in the audience who are thinking, what the fuck? Why can't you store a sound? That seems primitive. But the appeal is that you can never repeat yourself. And that for me is almost a, it's almost a metaphor for how the world is. Things are different all the time. Things don't repeat. If you let go of the idea that, okay, I had this great sound, I've got to use it again. I must use it again. It's, it's got so much currency. Just let let go. Come up with another good sound and then come up with another good sound and just keep on coming up with good sounds because there isn't a finite amount of good sounds. If you are good at making sounds, you'll just continue to make good sounds and they'll all be different and they'll all be interesting. Certainly what I hear in the pop world is a lot of drag and drop, is a lot of generic sounds, is a lot of the first setting that came up when I opened up the plug-in, which to me is a triumph of convenience over content. And I think that you start to hear the same sounds and it gets boring. It's not just uh, music now, it's always been that way, that producers who are under the pump, musos that are under the pump, or maybe creators that are a little bit nervous of that idea of letting go of what they've created before and just coming up with something completely new that they've never done before, taking that risk, having that approach of not repeating yourself. Sure, it's a bit risky, but to me, that's what makes great art. Great art has risk in it. Andy was working from home. He had a bunch of great demos. I think some of, probably some of the tracks that he had demoed made it into the final mixes. He was working in uh, Logic, 
Uh, we set him up with an SM7 and a little Neve 1073 preamp. That was the input stage for, I think, most of the keyboards and the vocals. And he was keen to not use generic drum sounds. He wanted the drums to sound programmed so that when you heard the drums, you didn't see a drummer so much. You just heard the rhythm, which I think works for a solo artist because it's not Andy Bull and his band, it's Andy Bull. When you hear Andy Bull's music, hopefully you picture him singing and playing the shit out of his keyboards and the wonderful sounds that he pulls. So we hired a studio, a good, a fantastic drum room, and I think we had about four drum kits. I forget how many snare drums we had, but we hit every one over and over and over for an entire day. By the end of the day, I thought, oh, shit, I never want to hear another snare drum in my life. But we came away with long files of multiple hits of snares, kicks, toms, cymbals, hi-hats, marked in different ways. One of my favourite methods is the Chad Blake 441. It would be placed equidistant from the top of the kick drum on the beater side and the snare drum just above the drummer's knee on their kick drum side pointing at the snare and the 441 is lovely because it's got very smooth top end you can press the hell out of it distort the preamp squish it hard and do it in a not too live a room so that it sucks up all the overtone all the distortion and compression brings up all the overtone of the drums and the compression and distortion gives the initial hit kind of a splat it's the trans in is pushed in and you hear the tone of the drum rather than the initial hit. Within the mix, rather than it being tall and high, it's got width. So it's got length and width rather than height, which lets it sort of occupy a a larger space and and has more density within the mix. So we hit all these drums and then gave them over to someone to chop up and turn into samples or uh, chop them up into single files that Andy could then drag into Logic and start programming up. Most of the drum sounds were the distorted mics because they just, they had that analogue crunch to them. So we weren't using Sans Amp or bit crushes or, you know, all your generic plugins. It Again, they, these were sounds that if we went in the, the next day with the same drummer on the same gear, we could not replicate those sounds. They are totally original sounds. And we even spoke briefly about making a sample CD and then dropped that idea pretty quickly because we wanted these sounds to be completely unique to this record. So the sounds are all recorded in a really great drum studio through a, an old Neve console with 1176s, Altec limiters, LA-2As, an old Spectrasonics compressor, which is a fantastic dirt-making machine. It sounds unlike anything else. Yeah, never afraid of distortion when it comes to drums and printing with the distortion, recording them, things distorted. So committing to that sound rather than going, yeah, I'll just get something, you know, something that's sort of nice and clean and then I'll fuck it up later. Just make the decision. Baby, I am the one that this is the Juno bass. In some spots is down low and then in other spots adds octaves on top, but it's big and growly in the bottom end. And not too wide as well. A lot of the bottom end is not coming from the kick drum. The bottom end really is coming from the Junos. I'll play you the kick drum. probably an M88 inside a kick drum through a Neve. That's been done about 50 million times. Nothing so fantastic about that. But this is the 441, compressed and distorted. So you can hear that it's sucked in a lot of the room. It doesn't have a great amount of bottom end in it, but it's got punch. And then I can play the stem of the drum stem.
So this is, when I make stems, it's all run through the analogue console. I mute everything else. So it's exactly as it w- would be in the mix. So that if you were to take all the stems and drag and drop them into a session and put all your faders at zero, you get the mix. With drums, I compress them pretty hard. Parallel compression. Yeah, I run the whole kit out through a pair of distressors and then mix it back in with the with the uncompressed drums. On the SSL, I'll use Bus A so that the mix that's going to the compressor is exactly the same mix as is uncompressed. And if I think the overheads are getting too splashy, then I'll take them out of the compression bus. Or if the room mics are too much, I'll take them out of the compression bus. But generally, I don't like to have overly complex signal paths when I mix. I like to treat the console as though it were a musical instrument almost where you can just be a bit more intuitive and not have to think right so that fade is going out that bus and then that goes into a mic pre and then it has to be padded down and then it goes somewhere else and so you've got these really complex signal paths that just require too much thought when really you should just have something simple that if you need to turn it up you can do it easily or if you need to turn it down so I try to streamline those the technical side of mixing it's not as though I'm working on an eight channel mixer on this record I was working working on a 72-channel console. So there was a lot going on, but if there are ways that I can simplify signal paths, then I'll do that. For instance, if there are four kick drum microphones, I just bust them together in tools and send them out one output and put them on one fader, balance them in tools so that if I need to turn the kick drum up, I just got one fader and I turn it up and it just happens without a lot of screwing around. Andy's very clever with his drum programming in that things are constantly changing and there's an evolution of sound all the way through the song. So rather than here's my verse sound, here's my chorus sound, here's my bridge sound, it might have gone through 12 different evolutions through the course of the track with things just coming in and out. They're all very subtle moves, but you know I think that while you may not consciously pick up on these sorts of things, unconsciously you do and it's, it, it adds a lot of interest to the music. Subtle textural changes um, so that there's a, there's a journey through the mix. Oh look, some of these Junos are worth just a quick listen because they sound fantastic. That's a Juno horn and it's got a bit of a pitch wobble on it as well. And also these old synthesizers, the pitch of them, they they wobble. They're not that stationary, which is kind of cool as well. In the same way that when people play instruments with strings, you know, they squeeze the neck a bit and they tense up and it changes the pitch and it's never quite right. There's some nice 80s pianos in here too. Yeah, I do love the the 80s references. Listen to that chorus. How 80s is that? It's like Spandau Ballet. There are some guitars in there, some sort of funky Prince-like Stratocasters. That just sort of play rhythm. Yeah, and they hide in there behind the drums, but they all add main vocals. I could cut my hair, you could wear me thin I'm on the outer getting envious, I need to begin And then when I get in the crowd Things always sound wetter when they're in solo than they are in the track. The reverb seems to sort of disappear a little bit. I'm always surprised by that, how much reverb and delays I'm throwing on things that sort of disappear into the song.
There are sections of the vocal where the the reverbs get bigger, where there's delay throws, the idea being that the vocal occupies different spaces depending on whereabouts in the song is. So towards the end of the song as the arrangement builds, delays come in. And everything you have I thought it would be mine That all sort of disappears into the track, but it does end up sounding like more dimensionality, more spatiality, so that it, it sounds as though he's occupying a, a bigger space and the music is in a, in a bigger space and there's more of a sense of the grandiose to it. And it's more theatrical, perhaps. The way the vocals in this are tracked is the classic pop style of triple tracking where you pan one left, you pan one centre and you pan one to the right, but you track them tightly so that it almost sounds like one voice with a chorus on it. Andy is good enough a singer. There's no tuning on this record. There's no vocal aligning. The guy can sing, so he doesn't need those crutches. You know, you do what you do to make things sound good and if you're not working with great vocalists, then you employ the tools that you need to employ to make it sound good. You know, it's it's not cheating, it's not a hoax, it's the production process. If the job is to make it sound good, then whatever tools you use to make it sound good, that's the job. But when you get to work with a great singer, of course, and you don't have to employ those tools, it's just an absolute joy to, to listen to because it has a quality about it. The robots haven't had their way with it. You know? Yeah, beware the robots. Working with Andy allowed Paul to flex some new muscles, often pushing him out of his comfort zone. This just goes to show that no matter how talented or experienced you are, being able to adapt and learn is still key in any art form. Between me and Andy, he spoke about how much ambience he would like to hear in the tracks. You know, that did actually push me out of my comfort zone a little bit. I'm sort of more used to mixing things a little drier because I do like direct delivery. So, yeah, things are a little wetter. Uh, I was cool with that. Yeah. And I've now sort of moved more towards creating more ambience in my recordings. And it all it's all song-based, you know. You do what the song tells you to do. There are things that are a mixture of automation in Pro Tools where plugins are automated or things are automated on the console where a might perhaps be um, an effects end where it doesn't go to the main mix. It purely just, it's a split of the main vocal and it just goes to a delay and you ride it up and down. And um, I would give that to Andy. Here's your delay fader. You go for it and stick it where you want it to go. And and we would go over the sections and ride it into automation so that once it was just right, then the automation would would play it back and the the faders are all motorised. I really like getting artists to become part of the mix process where not only are they telling me what they want to hear... In a very collegial way, it's not like, oh, yeah, you know, you just sit on the couch and and shut up or when when you give me your ideas, I'll nod and smile, but I'm going to completely ignore them. No, I really like to get artists even up on the console and give them faders and here, write some automation or stick it where you think it should be. You know, it's a a team sport and someone like Andy, he's got a fair bit of record making under his belt so he knows how things should sound. If I make the songwriter happy, then pretty happy about things. Even Paul will admit that the mastering process seems to be a dark art. Obviously, this does not deter him from trying to get as close to the finished product as possible. 
I know that mastering can probably tighten bottom end to a much greater extent than I'm capable of with the wizardry that they do. But certainly I try to get things tonally as close to where I want them to be with mastering, hopefully not adding any more than a dB at any frequency. Don't always manage it. But certainly it's, you know, it's not a great feeling when you do a mix and you take it out of the room and you're like, oh shit, it sounds nothing like what I was hearing in the control room. So I guess that's using a, a variety of monitoring levels. I spend most of the day listening pretty softly at speaking levels so that you could easily talk over the top of the mix. Yeah, and that requires you to concentrate because you're not being impressed by the sound. You haven't got this big, brassy, loud sound coming at you which, you know, gets your heart racing a little bit more and you're thinking, fuck, I'm awesome, it sounds so good, I'm awesome. And then you turn it down and it sounds weak as piss and you're like, oh, I'm not so, I'm actually not that awesome. So if you can get it sounding good at those sort of speaking levels, then I'll go, like, real loud, go large for maybe 20 minutes, half an hour um, to make sure that the bottom end is, isn't too big and that it's not so bright that it's biting your ears out. It's got to sound good loud, but it shouldn't sound harsh. It should still fall on your ear with ease. And then at low levels, it needs to leap out. And you've got to balance really finely when you're listening at low levels. The trick is, of course, to be working in a quiet space. Yeah. If you're in a space that's just computer fan noise is going to have you misjudging your top end completely because the, the fan is masking the treble. So you really got to be in a very quiet room where where you do turn it down to those, you know, sort of down to 60 dB, that you can still hear everything. And if a mix is working at that level, and that's the level that I work at most of the day, because it requires a lot of concentration. So it means that you're really inspecting the sound all day long. And then, you know, turn it up loud for a while, but don't give yourself ear damage. If the artist walks through the door, then turn it up loud and, and give them the, you know, the A&R lesson. Yeah, it's got to work at all all levels. And it's not just mastering doesn't magically it helps those things happen but those sort of considerations need to be moved into the mix process and not just left for mastering if mastering can usually it makes it louder brings out detail adds a bit of width maybe tightens the bottom end perhaps smooths off uh, the treble a bit it's not there to save your ass it's there to make good mixes even better whenever people say the word perfect in a studio a chill runs down my spine (laughs) Because I have no interest in perfection because I don't think it exists in art. Perfection is a prison. You'll never achieve it. And if you spend your whole life trying to chase it, as soon as you think you've found it, you'll probably redefine what perfection is and you keep on chasing. So it becomes a prison. I guess what you're going for is something that sounds good and has emotional content. Listening to Sound Studios on Cameron Mill. For more information on this artist or any of the artists featured on Silent Studios, please visit silentstudios.com.au.